Like most of us here tonight, Kathy and I have spent many years studying the gospel. We've had a regular habit of reading the scriptures. And in addition, as, as all of us do, we read commentaries. We've read commentaries by Skousen and Talmadge and McConkie and Ibley, you name it. And over the past 10 years, we've also spent a fair amount of time on the internet, you know, um, going to various blogs and, and so forth. I can't remember our exact journey, but it has included blog sites like uh, that of John Pontius and Avow and The Perfect Day and Pure Revelations and and others like Mike, uh, Abraham Gileadi, Mike Strat. I mean, I'm sure all of us have covered a lot of this same territory. But now we're excited because we've discovered, discovered the Doctrine of Christ website and all of you who are here working together to try to understand um, the doctrine of Christ and the, and the awesome truths that, that for so long, to me at least, they seem to be hidden. They, they weren't in plain sight. And yet now, as I look at them, I see more and more truth. Um, and I guess that has a lot to do with each of our uh, desire to come unto the Lord, and he has a way of opening up uh, and giving us uh, direction. So what I'd like to do is I start out by, by just making this statement, truth is not easily discovered. For example, Edison, the great inventor, he made at least 3,000 attempts before discovering how to make an incandescent light bulb. And by its very nature, truth is not revealed, in other words, by casual effort. It requires a strong desire and persistence to discover. Simple truths can save life. For example, during the Middle Ages, the Black Death killed millions of people. And if people of that time only knew that boiling water would kill the germs that caused the plague, millions would have been saved. But did anyone at that time believe that if they diligently asked the Lord how to overcome the plague, he would have given that simple answer to them? We see a variation on this theme with the casual question that Pilate, the Roman governor, gave to Jesus. He said, what is truth? Sadly, it appears from the record that he did not want to stick around to find the answer. We, too, may feel comfortable that we have all the truth that we need already, that we need no more truth. I think truth is revealed based on our desire. And each level of truth requires more and more effort. There are many levels of truth that we can pursue, but the most basic universal truth for those who have come to this earth to ascend is we should seek the answer to knowing why am I here and what does God want me to do while I'm here? We're going to spend this evening exploring this question. <clears throat> now, we, most of us have been fortunate enough to have learned about the Book of Mormon and are willing to read and study what it has to say. Then we'll be able going in the right direction, answering that important question of why we are here. 
The reason is simple. The Book of Mormon does contain the fullness of the gospel. Or in other words, it contains the doctrine of Christ. In its simplicity, and that doctrine teaches us that what God wants us to accomplish while we are here on earth. So, I guess the most important question tonight is, what is the doctrine of Christ? We're going to spend the rest of this evening covering this vital topic. For those of us who have been on these Zoom meetings before, I warn you uh, that uh, we're going to cover some of the territory that we've covered previously. But I hope that I can bring out some new aspects of the doctrine of Christ that maybe you haven't considered before. And for those of you who are new to our Zoom meeting, I hope that this will be an opportunity to have revealed something that, like I said, was hidden in plain sight. And um, hopefully we can uh, all gain from understanding this critical doctrine. So, from the very beginning in the Book of Mormon, we, have taught, we are taught this critical doctrine. In the early chapters of 1 Nephi, we are told that Lehi has a dream known as the vision of the tree of life. In this marvelous dream, the doctrine of Christ is taught symbolically. We learn later in the book that Nephi, his son, was desirous to see that same dream, see, hear, and know concerning the dream. And, and uh, he, we get the benefit uh, uh, from Nephi giving us a more detailed explanation and description of parts of the dream, and then a complete commentary. So, let's look at the dream. We can find it in 1 Nephi chapter 8. And I'm going to, if you'll give, bear with me, I'm going to summarize the dream and give you some insight, or at least some of the insights that I have gained from studying this dream. The dream begins with Lehi finding himself in a dark and dreary wilderness. In the wilderness, Lehi sees a man dressed in white who asked Lehi to follow him. At first, we may think that this man is a messenger from God who might lead him out of the wilderness. But after spending many hours in darkness, Lehi realizes that his condition is not has deteriorated, and he is now in a dark and dreary waste. Now, this is like going from a forest, wilderness, into a desert, waste. I would imagine that Lehi was most likely a traveling merchant. We can come to this conclusion when we learn that he was able to immediately pack up all of the essentials, including camels, tents, and so forth, and leave Jerusalem at a moment's notice. Based on this understanding, being lost in a desert waste would be, for him, as a traveling merchant, the greatest dread. This is true because being lost in a desert waste, you don't have any markers that will show you the way to go and in the right direction. For example, for those of us in Utah who are familiar Imagine being in the middle of Little Sahara down by Delta without any mountains to give you a point of reference. You lose your orientation and everything looks the same. And then you have the potential of going in the wrong direction 
and eventually dying of thirst or starvation. Now, it appears from the text that the man dressed in white is no longer around to guide him, which leaves Lehi completely alone. However, we know from the very first chapter in the Book of Mormon, Lehi knows that the Lord will answer his prayers. So he begins calling upon the Lord to help him find his way out of the waste. This aspect of the dream has great significance for each of us. In this world, we are exposed to many kinds of people who will try to show us the way. And even if they appear on the surface to be true messengers, being dressed in white or something, the only sure way to find our way out of the wastes of this life is to learn how to receive and rely on personal revelation from God. So after calling upon the Lord, Lehi sees a large and spacious building, uh, excuse me, a large and spacious field, which contains a beautiful tree. He eats some of the fruit of the tree, and it is the sweetest of all the fruit he has ever tasted. In this part of the dream, we learn that coming to the tree is vitally important. Nephi will later teach us that to reach the tree and eat the fruit represents coming into the presence of the Lord and receiving eternal life. After Lehi uh, eats the fruit, his first inclination is that he wants others to receive the same joy. And so he calls his wife Sariah and Sam and Nephi to come and and enjoy the fruit. Now, this is really critical to our understanding of our own personal journey. For once we have discovered the truth, the Lord wants us to help others find it too. Lehi then sees many other people searching for the tree and a great and spacious building where people are making fun of those who are partaking of the fruit of the tree, pointing at them and mocking them and so forth. Lehi is also shown an iron rod that leads to the tree and a straight and narrow path alongside the iron rod. From this, we learn of four different types of people who are approaching the tree. The first group cling to the iron rod and make it to the tree. But then, after they partake of the fruit, they are ashamed. I think in this case, cling means maybe to only occasionally hold on to. But in any case, they are not ready to endure to the end after reaching the tree. The most important thing I think we learn from this group is that just eating the the fruit of the tree is not enough. It's not the end of the journey. The next group sees, Lehi sees, are those who let go of the rod of iron and get lost in the midst of darkness. They stumble onto strange paths. And these people who are also distracted by the world and the pursuit of, well, they're, they're distracted by this pursuit of things, um, or they are taken off the path by other messengers, and they never partake of the fruit. Then he sees those who go directly to the great and spacious building, which represents the proud and wicked who openly oppose those who are enjoying the love of God by mocking them and telling them they're fools and so forth. Finally, the last group are those who hold fast to the iron rod, never letting go, 
and then humbly fall down at the foot of the tree before eating the fruit. These are they who are enduring to the end, but also not giving heed to those in the great and spacious building. For the things of the world or uh, or relying on others to reach the tree. But I think the most important thing we learn is that from them, they are falling down at the tree. This is a characteristic of humility, of having a broken heart and a contrite spirit. A characteristic that was required to follow the straight and narrow path in order to get to the tree in the first place. So, this dream is a symbolic representation of our journey here on earth to come into the come unto the Lord, which means to come into his presence, or this is also known as the second comforter. This is the goal of the whole dream, is to teach us what we must do, what difficulties we might face as we approach the tree. Now, in 2 Nephi chapters 31 and 32, Nephi gives us his final testimony, and he summarizes the doctrine of Christ, which is represented in the dream. One verse gives us all of the elements of the doctrine of Christ in just one verse. Can we all turn to 2 Nephi 31 verse 13? Okay, wherefore, my beloved brethren, I know that if ye shall follow the Son with full purpose of heart, acting no hypocrisy and no deception before God, but with real intent, repenting of your sins, witnessing unto the Father that ye are willing to take upon you the name of Christ by baptism, yea, by following your Lord and your Savior, down into the water according to his word. Behold, then shall you receive the Holy Ghost. Yea, then cometh the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost. And then ye ye shall speak with the tongue of angels and shout praises unto the Holy One of Israel. If we carefully review this verse, it contains a concise statement of the doctrine of Christ. I've broken down the doctrine of Christ, at least for me, into four specific steps. The first step is to follow the Savior with real intent. Second, repent of our sins. Third, be baptized in water and take upon us the name of Christ. And fourth, receive a baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost. Let's look at each one of these steps in our progression towards receiving the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost, which is the gate we must enter to be on the path that leads to the tree. I think before we can follow the Savior, we must first have a belief and hope that he is real, and he can, in fact, lift us up and help us to return to the Father. Can we turn to Alma chapter 32? verse 26 through 29. And now, as I said concerning faith, that is not a perfect knowledge. Even so, it is with my words. You cannot know their assurity at first unto perfection any more than faith is a perfect knowledge. 
But behold, if you will awake and arouse your faculties, even to an experiment upon my words, and exercise a particle of faith, yea, even if you can no more than desire to believe, let this desire work in you, even until you believe in a manner that you can give place for a portion of my words. Notice in verse 27, the key is the desire to believe. This is what I started out this evening with, is the concept or the idea that desire is the first moving force in our um, moving in the direction of understanding what we are all about and why we're here. Verse 28. Now, we will compare the word unto a seed. Now, if you give place that a seed may be planted in your heart, if it be a true seed or a good seed, if you do not cast it out by your unbelief, that you will resist the Spirit of the Lord, behold, it will begin to swell in, within your breasts. And when you feel these swelling motions, you will begin to say within yourself, it must needs be that this is a good seed, or that the word is good, for it beginneth to enlarge my soul, yea, it beginneth to enlighten my understanding, yea, it beginneth to be delicious to me. And now, behold, would not this increase your faith? I say unto you, yea, nevertheless, it hath not grown to a perfect knowledge. <clears throat> Alma teaches us that the journey begins with desire, a desire to believe the things we are taught about God are true. We must take this desire and act upon it. We must do the work, as Alma says, and plant the seed and nurture it and so forth. How, we do, how do we nurture a belief in Jesus Christ, our Savior? Well, the symbolic language of Alma is beautiful about the seed and growing and so forth. But we need to put these words into more of a how-to language to understand them better. In this first step, Alma teaches us that we need to take the time to learn about Jesus by studying his words and teachings. But we can't end there. We must go further and come to know him, not just know about him. Following the Savior with real intent, then, is the first part of the doctrine of Christ, as I mentioned before. We know him when we develop a relationship with him. We do that with regular and sincere prayer. Not just words said aloud or in our hearts repeated over and over again, but with a real desire to have two-way communication with him. I remember a, a couple of weeks back, uh, Malia mentioned that her stake president challenged them to spend 20 minutes in prayer with the Savior. We were given, Kathy and I were given a similar challenge, but it was for two hours a day, one hour in the morning and one at night. At first, that was like, wow, I can't, there's no way I can do that. Now, we did couple that with, you know, some scripture study and, and so forth, but getting into the habit of really having two-way communication with the Lord is wonderful, but it takes time, it takes effort, and um, 
We've been doing that now for two years and it's really been quite wonderful. Okay, so for example, when we pray, one of the things we need to learn to do is to listen. We ask questions and then we listen. He places impressions in our mind and we act upon them. Then we listen some more. Then we ask more questions and listen and act again. This is what is meant by following him with real intent. If we do not act upon these promptings, these feelings and so forth that he gives us, then we are not following him with real intent, but just going through the motions without any real desire to have a true relationship with him. I'm using the term listen, but that is not exactly what is happening here. In the beginning of this relationship with the Savior, when we listen, we are not necessarily receiving from him an audible voice. But instead, we are receiving impressions, thoughts, ideas, and feelings that come to us from the Lord. Eventually, when we have a stronger relationship with him, we may hear words from him, but this is not typically how it begins. Now, this listening also has a counterpart. The adversary also has the ability to give us thoughts. So the process is complicated by the fact that we need to learn how to distinguish between these two voices. But Mormon gives us a wonderful advice as to how to discern between the two of them. Can we have everybody go to Moroni chapter 7, verse 15 through 19? For behold, my brethren... It is given unto you to judge, that ye may know good from evil, and the way to know good from evil, and the way to judge is plain, that ye may know with a perfect knowledge, as the daylight is from the dark night. For behold, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man, that he may know good from evil. Wherefore, I show you a way to judge, for everything that inviteth to do good, and to persuade to believe in Christ, is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore, ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. But whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do evil, and to believe not in Christ, and deny him, and to serve not God, then ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of the devil. For after this manner doth the devil work. For he persuadeth no man to do good, no, not one. Neither do his angels, neither do they who subject themselves unto him. And now, my brethren, seeing that you know the light by which you may judge, which light is the light of Christ, see that you do not judge wrongfully. For with that same judgment which ye judge, ye shall also be judged. Wherefore, I beseech you, you brethren, that you should seek, search diligently in the light of Christ, that you may know good from evil. And if you will lay hold upon every good thing and condemn it not, you certainly will be a child of Christ. So as we listen to the various voices coming into our mind, we need to be able to judge. Does this voice speak truth? Does it persuade to follow Christ? Does it speak peace to my soul? The adversary can't fake, true peace. The light of Christ will help us distinguish between these two voices, but just to be sure, we should always ask the question, Lord, is this from you? 
over time will become more and more comfortable with the voice of the Lord and will have greater confidence in knowing which promptings are in fact from him. As part of this journey, we are asked by the Lord in 3 Nephi 9, 19-20 to make a sacrifice. Not a sacrifice of an animal, but a sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. This sacrifice of humbling ourselves before the Lord is necessary in order for us to receive the revelation that comes to us as represented by the iron rod. Only if we are willing to humble ourselves and say unto the Lord, Thy will be done, will we consistently receive further direction from him, which will keep us on the path and eventually lead us to the tree. Remember that the last group that made it to the tree demonstrated this humility by falling down at the tree. The next principle as described by Nephi in the doctrine of Christ is to repent of our sins. Excuse me. The process of developing a relationship with Jesus, as previously described, is also the process of repenting. It is a wonderful gift, and that is given to us to allow us to become like him. And as long as we continue to follow this process, we are progressing. And when we stop repenting, our progress also stops. It's like trying to strengthen any muscle. It requires exercise to grow stronger. As we talk with the Lord, he tells us things we should do. If we listen, obey, we are repenting. We are repenting because he will give us knowledge about how to correct things in ourselves and how to improve. In school, the teacher gives out homework assignments. And if we do our homework, we learn. And if we don't do our homework, we fail to learn the lesson that was intended. In the same way, if we fail to act, Upon those promptings given by him, we too will fail in our progress. The Savior gave us a perfect example of how this process works in John 5.30. If we could jump over there, please. Verse 30. And I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Let's break this down just a little bit. As I hear from the Spirit, from Father, I judge whether or not this is from the Father. And if it is, then I know my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. There's another um, sort of variation on this same theme in verse 19 in the same chapter. When Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. So, in other words... Father prompted Jesus to do everything he did, and Jesus obeyed. I'll give you an example of this behavior that I think is is fairly straightforward. If we think about the first public miracle by Jesus, before performing that miracle, no doubt Jesus asked the Father, 
Can I do this? Is it your will that I turn this water into wine? And throughout his entire ministry, Jesus spoke with the Father, seeking advice and counsel and direction. And and then he acted upon those promptings and understanding. This is the example he's giving to us. He wants us to do the same thing. When the father says heal a leper, raise the dead child, Jesus knew he not only had the father's permission, but he had his power to do it as well. In the New Testament, there are over 25 instances written down uh, and recorded of the Lord praying or seeking solitude before he ministered or blessed others. And this is the best part. I know Jesus is inviting us to do the same thing with him. He will gladly direct us in all things if we will let him. All we have to do is ask. And when we do what we are and then we do what we are told. This is what is being meant, or at least I think this is what is being meant by being perfect in Christ. We are perfect in that we are completely obedient to his promptings and impressions. And when we make a mistake, if we have nurtured a broken heart, then we quickly repent, and then we are perfect again. This is the most critical element in the doctrine of Christ. We've heard this said over and over in our meetings over the past months, seeking for and acting upon personal revelation. This is also how we can share in his power. If he tells us to heal someone, we know that that person will be healed because he told us to do so. I'd like to take a moment and show how this principle applies by sharing a a brief story about our son Brian's baby blessing. Brian was born four months premature. And at the time, we learned that he missed Guinness World Record by four days for being the most premature baby to survive. Immediately after he was born, he was taken from the delivery room into a special newborn ICU. And because he was so small, he was only about a pound, and his skin was so thin, I mean, it was almost transparent. They had to cover his little isolate with plastic film so his skin um, wouldn't dry out. He looked pretty pathetic at first. The reason I'm telling you this is that the next day, this was the picture my father-in-law and I saw as we approached the isolate to give him a name and a blessing. Now, um, Kathy thought I would just give him a name and as she did not think that he would survive more than a day or so. So her thoughts were that I was just there to go through the motions of giving him a name. However, for some reason, I didn't have the same perspective. I had fasted the night before and really didn't have any other idea that he would that he would not make it through this difficult birth. When I laid my two fingers on his little head, the spirit gave me words to say that were not mine. I blessed him that he would grow up normally and have no major difficulties. Kathy remembers the blessing and reminds me that I blessed him that his mission would be on this earth. Well, my father-in-law, who was a medical doctor, was really surprised by my blessing. But time would tell that the promise that the Lord made to Brian would, in fact, come true. 
he has grown up. He played soccer and other sports when he's growing up. He went on a mission and he's graduated from college. Brian is our miracle baby. And I think that the Lord um, has been part of Brian's life. And I'm grateful that the Lord was willing to give me those words to say in that blessing. The next part of the doctrine of Christ is baptism in water. Baptism is an outward ordinance that formalizes the covenant we make with the Lord. And by doing so, we take upon us his name. Jesus gave the perfect example of baptism by being baptized himself. It should be noted that Jesus went to the only person in Israel at the time that had the fullness of the authority to baptize him into the higher order or the church of Christ. In other words, uh, you know, we know him as John the Baptist. This higher order is important because without it, the ability for a person to receive the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost is not available. Now, this may sound strange to most of us who our entire life, who during our entire lifetime have assumed that as long as someone with the priesthood baptized us, all is well. But let's take a closer look at this high idea of higher authority. Can we uh, jump over to 3 Nephi chapter 7, verse 17, and then 23 through 24? You'll have to forgive me. I am not the fastest draw when it comes to Scripture anymore. On the mission, we were all very quick. We did Scripture chases, but... I've kind of lost it. Okay, verse 17. And he did minister, now this is talking about Nephi, did minister many things unto them, and all of them cannot be written, and a part of them would not suffice. Therefore, they are not written in this book. And Nephi did administer with power and great authority. Okay, 23. And thus pass away the thirty and second year also. And Nephi did cry unto the people in the commencement of the thirty and third year, and he did preach unto them repentance and remission of sins. Now I would have you remember also that there were none who were brought unto repentance who were not baptized with water. Okay, so to summarize, verse 17 tells us that Nephi had great authority. So he must have held a level of priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, to act on behalf of the Lord. However, as soon as Jesus appears to the people in Bountiful in AD 34, 35 time frame, first thing he does is give authority to Nephi to baptize. Let's jump over to 3 Nephi 11, uh, 18 through 21. And it came to pass that he spake unto Nephi, for Nephi was among the multitude. And he commanded him that he should come forth. And Nephi arose and went forth and bowed himself before the Lord and did kiss his feet. And the Lord commanded him that he should arise. And he arose and stood before him. And the Lord said unto him, I give unto you power that ye shall baptize this people when I am again ascended into heaven. So 
giving authority at this time would seem to be a bit redundant if Nephi already had the authority. Yet, here is a mystery. If all that was necessary to baptize was the Aaronic priesthood, which Nephi appeared to have possessed back in AD 30, why would the Lord give it to him again? Because we are talking about a different level of baptism, a baptism into the Church of Christ, which is the terrestrial order. This principle is new to most who have believed all their lives that there is only one baptism and it could be given by anyone holding the Aaronic priesthood that was restored by John the Baptist. However, with that same understanding that most of us have, why don't we hear of people receiving a baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost, as we quoted earlier? It's because the priesthood to perform that level of baptism has been gone for some time. Just as it had been, just as it had been lost in the time of Third Nephi. The Lord wanted us to remember the covenant we made with him when we were baptized. So in addition to baptism, he's also instituted the sacrament. This outward ordinance reminds us of the covenant of taking upon us his name and keeping the commandments he gives through his spirit. The baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost. I quoted this earlier, but I'm going to I'm going to take another part of this and just remind us of what it said. 2 Nephi 31.13 Behold, then shall you receive the Holy Ghost. Yea, then cometh the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. And then can ye speak with the tongue of angels and shout praises unto the Holy One of Israel. So let me ask all of us here. When we were baptized... Did we have this wonderful experience? Most of us would say no, especially if we were baptized at eight years old. In fact, most would ask, what does the above verse really mean? In order to completely understand, we need to look at experiences written in the scriptures to know exactly what this event, the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost, really means. In Helaman, chapter 5, verse 20 through 26, I think we can get a sense of it. If we could turn to Helaman, chapter 5, please. And it came to pass that Nephi and Lehi did proceed from thence to go to the land of Nephi. And it came to pass that they were taken by an army of Lamanites and cast into prison. Yea, even that same prison which Ammon and his brethren were cast by the servants of Limhi. By the way, this is not Ammon, the son of Mosiah, but the other Ammon that comes and rescues the people of Limhi. And after they had cast, been cast into prison many days without food, behold, they went forth to the prison to take them that they might slay them. And it came to pass that Nephi and Lehi were encircled about as if by fire, even in a much as they durst not lay their hands upon them for fear, lest they should be burned. Nevertheless, Nephi and Lehi were not burned, and they were as standing in the midst of fire and were not burned. And when they saw that they were encircled about by with a pillar of fire, 
and that it burned them not, their hearts did take courage. For they saw that the Lamanites durst not lay their hands upon them, neither durst they come near, near unto them, but stood as if they were struck dumb with amazement. And it came to pass that Nephi and Lehi did stand forth and began to speak in them, saying, Fear not, for behold, it is God that has shown you this marvelous thing, in which is shown unto you that you cannot lay your hands upon us. Now, we may think that this is just a wonderful miracle given to these people to show that Nephi and Lehi were sent from God. But, The Savior clarifies our understanding by saying it was, in fact, a baptism of fire. Let's uh, jump back to 3 Nephi and go to 3 Nephi chapter 9, verse 18 through 20. This is the Savior. And I am the light and the life of the world. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And ye shall offer up unto me no more the shedding of blood. Yea, your sacrifices and your burnt offerings shall be done away. For I will accept none of your sacrifices and your burnt offerings. And ye shall offer for a sacrifice unto me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And whoso cometh unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, Him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost, even as the Lamanites, because of their faith in me at the time of their conversion, were baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost, and they knew it not. Now, I doubt that the Lamanites didn't know something wonderful had happened to them, but most likely they didn't know it was called the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost. But with The knowledge of this great event, Nephi and the other disciples on the American continent are looking forward to a time when this same gift will be given to them. Can we jump to, uh, go to 3 Nephi 19, 3 through 20. This is going to be a long read, but it is filled with really uh, awesome information. Verse 3, yea, and even all that night, this was, so this was the, the night after the Savior's visit to the Nephites, the first, the first day. And even all the night it was noised abroad concerning Jesus, and inasmuch at, did they send forth unto the people that they were many, yea, an exceedingly great number did labor exceedingly all that night that they might be on the morrow in the place where Jesus should show himself unto the multitude. Okay, I'm going to jump to verse 6. And the twelve did teach the multitude, and behold, they did cause that the multitude should kneel down upon the face of the earth and should pray unto the Father in the name of Jesus. And the disciples did pray unto the Father in the name of Jesus, and it came to pass that they arose and ministered unto the people. And when they had ministered these same words which Jesus had spoken the day before, nothing varying from the words which Jesus had spoken, behold, they knelt down and prayed to the Father in the name of Jesus. And here's the real critical uh, verse. 
and they did pray for that which they most desired, and they desired that the Holy Ghost should be given unto them. And when they had thus prayed, they went down to the water's edge, and the multitude followed them. And it came to pass that Nephi went down into the water and was baptized into the church of Christ. And he came forth out of the water and began to baptize. And he baptized all those whom Jesus had chosen. So the only people getting baptized at this moment is the twelve. And it came to pass that when they were all baptized and had come forth out of the water, the Holy Ghost did fall upon them, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And behold, they were encircled about as if it were by fire, and it came down from heaven, and the multitude did witness it and did bear record, and angels did come down out of heaven and did minister unto them. And it came to pass that while the angels were ministering unto the disciples, behold, Jesus came and stood in the midst and ministered unto them. And it came to pass that he spake unto the multitude and commanded them that they should kneel down upon the earth, and also that his disciples should kneel down upon the earth. And it came to pass that when they had all knelt down upon the earth, he commanded his disciples that they should pray. And behold, they began to pray, and they did pray unto Jesus, calling him their Lord and their God. Now, this is really subtle, but it's very important that once you have received the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost, you are now adopted by the Savior. He becomes your father. And so it is appropriate at that point, once you have had this Uh, baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost, to be able to pray to the Savior. 19. And it came to pass that Jesus departed out of the midst of them and went a little way off from them and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast been given the Holy Ghost unto these whom I have chosen. And it is because of their belief in me that I have chosen them out of the world. So it's important to note at this critic, that this is critical to our understanding that all of these men had previously been baptized year before, years before, but now they desire to have their baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost. They understand the significance of what they are desiring as they have earnestly prayed for it. And I cannot over, overemphasize it. The baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost is critical to reaching the tree. We, have may, we, we may have felt the influence of the Holy Ghost in our lives, but imagine that influence is now 100 times what it was in the past. That is what a baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost is all about. It is not what you've been taught in the past. This is what is meant by the injunction, receive the Holy Ghost. Another clue to why the baptism of fire and Holy Ghost is so special can be found in the events of the day of Pentecost. Here we see that the Holy Ghost was given to the apostles in Jerusalem and great spiritual manifestations were given on that day. In anticipation for the day of Pentecost, 
you will note that the word Pentecost really means 50 days. In other words, it's the harvest of first fruits. This is a Jewish um, festival that has been around since the time of Moses. But it was in anticipation of this great event of the Holy Ghost being given to the apostles, who would then in turn give that to others. Notice also with the Nephites that the Savior pleads with the Father to give this gift to his disciples. This is not some perfunctory ordinance that comes only and through, but it only comes only and through the Savior. This is why this is so special. This is part of the real doctrine of Christ. Well, at this point, I would ask us to seriously consider whether or not we have experienced this gift. Have we been surrounded by light? And has our entire body been changed by the Lord? If we have not, then I admonish each of us to seek this blessing. Then we too may be redeemed. I strongly encourage us to take this journey until we receive our baptism of fire and Holy Ghost. Some of us may say in our hearts, this is only for prophets and apostles. The Lord isn't going to give me this great gift. But I would remind us all that God is no respecter of persons. The way to him is the same for all of us and has been the same since the time of Adam. We all have to do this to shed We all need to shed our unbelief that we too can come unto him like the Nephites did. Okay, so the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost is only the beginning. And you might think, wow, you know, we've done a lot just to get to this point. We've been following uh, the the straight and narrow path. We have been um, listening to the Spirit and obeying the Lord. But Nephi tells us that um, ye might know that this is the gate by which ye should enter. Let's let's jump back to Second <clears throat> Nephi thirty one seventeen through nineteen, and I'm going to start um, at the top of the page, just one line down. For the gate by which ye should enter is repentance and baptism by water. Then cometh a remission of your sins by fire and by the Holy Ghost. So the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost is is more than just this intense light, but it also includes a remission of our sins, a burning out of us of our sins. 18. And then ye are in this straight and narrow path, which leads to eternal life. Yea, ye have entered in by the gate. Ye have done according to the commandments of the Father and the Son, and ye have received the Holy Ghost, which witnesses of the Father and the Son unto the fulfilling of the promise which he hath made, that if ye entered in by the way, ye should receive. And now, my beloved brethren, after ye have gotten into this straight and narrow path, I would ask, if all is done. Behold, I say unto you, Nay, for you have not come thus far, save it were by the word of Christ, with unshaken faith in him, relying wholly upon the merits of him 
who is mighty to save. Notice that Nephi repeats in these verses the imagery of the straight and narrow path given in the dream. But this is only the gate. We must continually repent and listen to his voice and act on the commandments he gives us through the Spirit. And if we do, then we will eventually have the baptism of fire and Holy Ghost that cleanses us from the stains of this world and redeems us from the fall. And after we have gotten onto the straight and narrow path and have had a baptism of fire, then Nephi promises us that we can speak with the tongue of angels, or in other words, become true messengers of God. Let's um, skip a page and go over to chapter um, 32 and read verse 2 and 3. Do you not remember that I said unto you that after you had received the Holy Ghost, you could speak with the tongue of angels? And now, how could you speak with the tongue of angels, save it were by the Holy Ghost? Angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, wherefore they speak the words of Christ. Wherefore, I said unto you, feast upon the words of Christ. Listen to that voice of the Savior. For behold, the words of Christ will tell you all things that you should do. I think this is what is meant by holding fast to the iron rod. It is simply receiving and acting on revelation given to us by the Holy Ghost. When we do, the Holy Ghost can guide us in every aspect of what we do and say. It is acting in faith, listening to and obeying the Holy Ghost, that we progress make progress along the straight and narrow path. As we do, we are redeemed from the sins of the world. It is this cleansing that represents our progress along the rod of iron, moving us closer to the tree, which represents our coming into the presence of the Lord. I don't think the doctrine of Christ is is really that complicated. In fact, once we learn how to rely on the voice of the Lord, our lives become much simpler. That doesn't mean our lives won't be difficult, but when we rely on the Lord, he carries our burdens for us and they become light. So where is the straight and narrow path leading us? Let's uh, jump over to verse 6 in chapter 32. Verse 6, Behold, this is the doctrine of Christ, and there will be no more doctrine until after he shall manifest himself unto you in the flesh. And when he shall manifest himself unto you in the flesh, the things which he shall say unto you shall you observe to do. So Nephi is not speaking of coming into the Lord's presence sometime in the future after we pass through the veil. He's speaking to those of his time and to all who learn the doctrine of Christ, including us in our day. The Savior wants us to come unto the tree now, while we are on this probation, which means to literally come into his presence in the flesh or during our mortality. He is inviting all of us that after we have been cleansed through continual repentance and by a baptism of fire and have received and are feasting, or in other words, acting on the words of Christ, 
given to us by the Holy Ghost, and then continue on that path, he will be there to meet us at the tree. <clears throat> the new doctrine spoken of in, the, in this verse is a perfect knowledge of him when we come into his presence and will include all the things we ask of him while in his presence. This experience of coming into the presence of the Lord is to happen in this life, not sometime in the future after we have died. This means now, while we are in the flesh. Yes, let's reread the verse I just quoted. He said, in the flesh or in our mortal bodies. This is why we hear so frequently that now is the time to prepare to meet God and not procrastinate the day of repentance until it is everlastingly too late. I think there's a philosophy taught by many that if we don't get it right in this life, there's always time in the spirit world that we can make up for that failure. This is a doctrine of the adversary. They, the dark ones, would love for us to procrastinate our relationship with the Lord while in this life and to, heck, eat, drink, and be married. But following the the doctrine of Christ, yeah, it's a personal journey. It asks each of us to have faith and pursue a course that will cleanse us from the sins of this world. There is a false idea in the world that all we have to do to be saved is to believe in Christ. And I guess in part that is true because of the atonement, but it is false if we want to achieve what we came to this earth to accomplish. In other words, for those of us who came here for ascension and eternal progress. We may mistakenly believe that this progression can occur after we have passed through the veil, but Alma will disabuse us of this false idea by telling us it is now is the time And we will not be able to say when we come to that awful crisis that we will repent and return to God. Can we uh, jump over to Alma 34, 33, please? And now, as I said unto you before, as you have so many witnesses, therefore I beseech of you that you do not procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end. For after this day of life, which is given to us to prepare for eternity, behold, if we do not improve our time while in this life, then cometh the night of darkness, wherein there can be no labor performed. So Alma is teaching us that the day of repentance is our mortal life, our entire life, not just some period of time before we can be baptized. The critical truth is that we are here to be tested, and that test can only occur behind a veil. If we do not follow the doctrine of Christ, then when we die, we will go to the spirit world where no progress can occur, and we will have wasted this mortal experience. Jesus gave us a perfect example of the doctrine of Christ. Nephi begins his discourse on the doctrine of Christ by talking about John the Baptist, who will baptize the Savior. Here are his words as he describes the Savior's journey to the tree, which is an example of the journey we all must take. Let's uh, go back over to 2 Nephi chapter 31. 
verse 4 through 9. Wherefore, I would that ye should remember that I have spoken unto you concerning that prophet which the Lord showed unto me, that should baptize the Lamb of God, which should take away the sins of the world. And now, if the Lamb of God, he being holy, should have need to be baptized by water, to fulfill all righteousness, oh then, how much more have need have we, being unholy, to be baptized, yea, even by water? And now I would ask you, my beloved brethren, wherein the Lamb of God did fulfill all righteousness in being baptized by water? Know you not he was holy? But notwithstanding he being holy, he showeth unto the children of men that according to the flesh he humbleth himself before the Father, and witness unto the Father that he would be obedient unto him in keeping his commandments. Wherefore, after he was baptized with water, the Holy Ghost descended upon him in the form of a dove. By the way, that descending upon him in the form of the dove was the Savior's baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost. Like unto me, therefore follow me and do the things which ye have seen me do. Oops, I jumped over to another one. Therefore, okay, so let me just go back. And again, it showeth unto the children, and this is verse 9. The straightness of the path and the narrowness of the gate assemble in the dream by which they should enter, he having set the example before them. As a reminder, let's look again at John 5.30, where the Savior gives us a perfect example of how he relied on personal revelation in all that he did. John 5.30. And I can do mine own... I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I'm going to inject by the Spirit, I judge whether it be good or evil. And if it is good, then my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. So, in conclusion, I'd like to quote just a few of the last words of Nephi that he spoke in 2 Nephi 33, 7 through 10. If I could have you um, turn a page, a couple pages, and get over to that. I have charity for my people and great faith in Christ that I shall meet many souls spotless. This is Nephi talking, by the way. Uh, many souls spotless at his judgment seat. I have charity for the Jew. I say Jew because I mean them from whence I came. I also have charity for the Gentiles, but behold, for none of these can I hope, except they can be that they shall be reconciled unto Christ and enter into the narrow gate and walk in the straight path which leads to life and to continue in the path until the day, to the end of the day of probation. And now, my beloved brethren, and also Jew, and all ye ends of the earth, hearken unto these words, and believe in Christ. And if you believe not in Christ, believe these words. 
And if you believe, not, excuse me, and if you believe not in these words, believe in Christ. And if you shall believe in Christ, ye shall believe in these words. And they are the words of Christ. And he hath given them unto me. And they teach all men that they should do good. I began this presentation uh, by saying that truth is not easily discovered. Specifically, the most important truth that we need to know is what are we here to learn on earth? What truth, that truth, by the way, as I've hopefully helped everybody to see again, is that truth is the doctrine of Christ. If we look at the doctrine of Christ, again, it's just four simple steps. Following the Savior with real intent which means gaining a relationship with him, not just learning about him, but learning to know him. Continuously repenting of our sins, which includes seeking for and acting upon personal revelation, being baptized in water and taking upon us the name of Christ, and eventually receiving a baptism of fire in the Holy Ghost. As mentioned by Lehi, once we, are, once we are on the straight and narrow path, we need to look around and search for others that we can lead to the tree. Just as Lehi sought for Sariah, Nephi, and Sam. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.